0: Amen. Please be seated. Hey, before I pray for us, just uh, two words of housekeeping, and one is escaping me. Oh, yeah, there it is. Okay, so um, I do have an invitation to go back to um, to Ethiopia in January, and so knowing that it's Christmas time and uh, and funds are tight, um, uh, just there's no obligation. But if you would like to participate in that work, um, with me to help me get there and build up the brothers in the church in Ethiopia. I would greatly appreciate that. Um, uh, the elders just asked me the dates and like a, a an idiot numbers guy, I don't know them. It's uh, in January sometime. So if you can participate, that would be stupendous. Second thing before I pray is just a word of like, Explanation about uh, about this sermon. Um, A wise man once said that a preacher is like a hunter gatherer. He doesn't create anything. He goes out and finds great things and brings them uh, prepared to his congregation. And so um, if you listen to I, I heard several really, really heard and read several really great things just about Christ and about Christmas this week. And this uh, message is sort of a, an amalgamation, is that the right word, of all of these things. And so um, if I say anything cool, assume it was somebody else's stuff, all right? Now let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, actually, open your Bibles to the book of Hosea and put your finger there, and then we'll pray. I'm giving you some time because it might take you a while. It's in the prophetic section of your, uh, of your Bible right after Daniel, and right before Joel. Let's uh, let's pray while you're while you're turning there, Father. Um, you indeed have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Um, but not just that; He is our chief delight. He is the one our souls long to see. God, we want to be near your Son. We want to be near the head of the church who for love and in love gave himself for all of us that he might save his people from their sin. Lord, we have come today to remember Jesus. And so would you send your spirit, would you give us joy as we think about your word and the coming of our savior and the name that you gave him. Would you bless this time, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the name that calms our fears and that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ear, tis life and health and peace. Jesus, name above all names. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord to the glory of God the father i would submit to you brothers and sisters that while the name of jesus carries with it a sweetness in our souls we don't know the half of it there is no word in the english language more precious than the name of our incarnate savior the teeth the tongue the lips can form no greater utterance. Our minds can express no greater idea than his name. We can voice no greater incantation of joy than the name of Jesus. This name was chosen by the father for his incarnate son before the world began. And it was worked, listen to me, it was worked by the foreknowledge of God into Israel's deep history. It was announced on two separate occasions to the mother and the father of Christ And it has been the moniker and the meditation and the marvelous joy of every saved individual since the resurrection of Christ. Jesus, a name altogether lovely because the one who it identifies is altogether lovely. His love is better than wine and his name is like oil poured out. Therefore the nations love him and so do we. We love Jesus and we love the name that he was given. When the angel announced to Joseph, that he should call the child in Mary's womb the name Jesus. In Hebrew would be Yeshua. He said, this, uh, he said this was because, so he says, you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. That angel announced a name that was as pregnant with meaning as was his mother's womb. There are marvelous things here, brothers and sisters, about the name that God bestowed upon his, our Savior, his son. I mentioned before that in the providence of God, the name Joshua, where we get our name for Jesus, has been worked into the deep history of Israel. We could think of all the times that the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, all of the times that the angel of Yahweh appeared to men and was named by them or revealed in some measure to them. This is none other than the eternal word of God appearing in human form prior to his being born in Bethlehem. He's called uh, in all of these different texts, the angel of Yahweh shows up and there's always some name asked for or given that reveals something about the nature of God. So he appears and he's called uh, Bir Lahai Rai, the God of seeing by Hagar. He's called Yahweh, the living one, the name given to Moses in the burning bush. That's the angel of the Lord. That's Christ. He's called to Joshua of the Old Testament, the commander of the army of the Lord. There are also some contexts in which he refuses to give his name. Uh, When when the birth of Samuel was foretold to Manoah and Manoah's wife, the angel of Yahweh comes to Manoah and and he gives this prophecy and Manoah says, what is your name? And the angel says, why do you ask me my name, seeing that it is too wonderful? It's just too important for you. You're not ready for this. And your spine tingles when you hear that. All of these texts help us to see this old adage, a truism, that the Old Testament is Christ concealed. The New Testament is Christ revealed. Old Testament, same house, lights are off. New Testament, same house, lights are on, and we can see. Okay, so the angel of Yahweh reveals certain things about the name. But the two biblical creatures, characters, not creatures, that we need to have in our minds at Christmas time. When we hear that Mary's boy will be called Jesus, the two names are Joshua, the son of Nun, and Hosea, the prophet. Okay, in Numbers 13, verse 16, we're told that Joshua, the great hero of Israel, was not his real name. He wasn't really called Joshua. His given name, his birth name was Hosea. Okay, Hosea means salvation or deliverer. This is what the Israelites screamed to the Davidic kings as they were coming into their kingdom. Hoshea Hosea, salvation to our God. Hosea, do you hear that? It's, it's salvation to our God, they would scream. This is what was quoted to Christ at his triumphal entry when he came to the city that was rightfully his. Hoshea Hosea, Joshua's given name was Hosea. And there's nothing wrong with that name because it means redemption or salvation. So why would Moses go and tweak it? Why would he change it to Joshua, Why would he do that? Well, the name Joshua is a step up from deliverer. Hosea means deliverer or salvation. Yahshua means Yahweh is deliverer. Yahweh is our salvation. The name Joshua highlights not just the action of redemption and rescue, but the identity of the one who would be redeemer and rescuer. The name Jesus or Yeshua identifies Mary's son as Yahweh who has come to redeem us. This is significant too, because not just the meaning of the name, but Joshua in the Old Testament, um, all of the patterns and the types of redemption, you have Joshua coming onto the scene, and there's all of these events that point us and prepare us for Christ in pattern and in type. So never forget that it was Joshua alone who went up on the mountain with Moses to receive the law. So you've got the the lawgiver, the law who came through Moses. And on the mountain with Moses getting the law is Yeshua. It was Yeshua who would wait outside the tabernacle while Moses went in. It was Yeshua that battled Amalek in Exodus 17 when Moses was crucified in prayer on the mountain. Listen to me. Moses goes up on the mountain. He sends Yeshua down to fight the Amalekites, the, the, the sworn enemy of God's people. Moses goes up onto the mountain and under one arm. So, so the idea is he goes up on the mountain to pray for Joshua's victory. And as a man, he raises his hands and he prays, but the fight is going on and his arms get tired and they start to droop. And so there's two guys on the mountain with him. There's her, you don't have to remember her you should though because her was born according, born of the tribe of Judah he was of the kingly tribe her is under one arm and Aaron who was the high priest is under the other arm Moses is sitting on a rock interceding from heaven as it were on the mountain overlooking the battle that's going on on earth he's seated on a rock interceding from heaven with a king and a high priest under each outstretched arm While Joshua is overwhelming the Amalekites on earth. If you think that's an accidental detail, I've got a bridge I want to sell you. You've got king and priest ascended before God, praying for the battle that's going on down on earth. And Yeshua, Yeshua is on earth in his body, conquering the earth, conquering his enemies. But perhaps most importantly, these patterns and these types, the name Joshua is most precious to Israel because he was the one who was able to accomplish what Moses as the lawgiver could not. Moses was the giver of the law, which brought condemnation to Israel. If you'll do these things, the Lord will bless you. Well, they couldn't do those things, and so they couldn't receive the blessing. Moses could not bring them into the land, therefore He could not cause the people to inherit the land. He himself did not cross over the Jordan, but died in the wilderness. It took Yeshua to raise up after Moses, not in contradiction, but in completion of the lawgiver's work. It was Joshua who gave the people victory and a kingdom. Yeshua caused them to inherit what God had given. So while redemption from Egypt came by God through Moses, the Sabbath rest that came to Israel when they entered the land came by God through Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. This should have prepared Israel to hear with utmost joy and receptivity what John says in his prologue. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Yeshua. And it was of his fullness that we have all received grace upon grace. Okay. Okay. So Jesus, given the name Yeshua, takes with him all of those patterns and all of those types and all of those meanings from Joshua, the great deliverer and hero of Israel. But there's another biblical character that comes later than Joshua, but it's just as significant to the meaning of Christ's name. And we can jump onto this rabbit trail by noting carefully the reason Joseph was given the name Jesus to bestow upon his son. He said, the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. From their sins. Now that sounds marvelous, but we should ask, what kind of sins will he save his collective people from? Well, what sin did the angel have in mind when he said, name him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sin? Well, on the one hand, the obvious answer is he'll save us from all of them and God be praised. So if you're a slobbering drunkard, if you're a vile luster, if you're a treacherous idolater or a quick-tempered wrathful, if you're a snake-like slanderer, a bitter ungrateful or or rebellious rebellious to your parents, if you're satanic in your pride or envious or covetous or as lazy as all get out or or a greedy lover of money, or if you're a gluttonous lard, I've got great news. Christ came to save you from all of these. If you repent, he will pardon you, period. Any sin, own it, ask, ask forgiveness and he will forgive you, period. He is Jesus and he came to save his people from their sin. That's glorious news. But there's a greater contextual meaning that helps us to understand what sin Jesus came to save his people from. And it has to do with the second person in the scripture that fills out the name of Jesus. This man was named Hosea, Hosea, Hosea. Right? So you're in Hosea, I want you to open. We're gonna read a few, uh, a few texts together and I want you to see this, uh, this Old Testament context that Matthew is giving us. So you're in Hosea chapter one, look in verse two. It says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, I don't know if you noticed that, but there's one word repeated three times, and it's one we don't want to talk about at church. Prostitution and whoredom. God says, I want you to, he says to his prophet, Hosea, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And all of our Sunday school teachers say, God, why would you do that and, and make it to where we cannot teach from the book of Hosea ever? Like, what, what are you doing? Well, he says, uh, the reason he's going he's gonna to tell him um, is that it's a, it's a picture of, of God marrying Israel. We'll see this. In verse 4, the Lord said to him, call his, uh, so, so, um, so he went and took Gomer, verse 3, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call your son's name Jezreel. That's a place in northern Israel, the place of unfaithfulness. Name him Jezreel, for in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Mm -hmm. And on that day, day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse six, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy. Lo, Ruamah. Name your daughter, no mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. How do you like that name for your kid? Name your kid. God is done giving you mercy and grace. Name her that. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will save them by Yeshua. Yahweh will be their salvation. I will not save them by bow or sword or war or horses or horsemen. I will save them by Yahweh. Then she weaned no mercy. She conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name Not my people, lo Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. How do you like that for a Christmas uplifting sermon? Name your children, Washington, D.C. that I'm about to destroy. Name your your child, no more mercy because I'm done with you. Name your next child, you're not my people for I'm not your God. Ouch. Now, verse 10. But the number of the children of Israel, this nation that he's talking about judging, shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of the Jezreel. Now, Now turn. To, uh, to chapter 2, verse 21. We're just going to read a little bit more to see this this metaphor that God gives us in Hosea that helps us to understand the name that's given, Yeshua. In verse 21 of chapter 2, God says, uh, Oh man, we need to read more. Look at verse 14. Hosea says, God says through Hosea, Therefore, behold, I will allure her this this um, wife of whoredom, that is my people Israel and my people Judah, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And she shall answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares Yahweh, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal or my master, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by, uh, by name no more. And I will make a covenant with them on that day uh, with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land. I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast and love and in mercy I will betroth you. Do you see that three or four times? Betrothed, betrothed, betrothed. I'm going to marry you, you prostitute, you unfaithful bride. I'm going to marry you even still, says the Lord, and you shall know Yahweh. Now, look in verse uh. verse 23, he says, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. These hopeless names, you will get no more mercy. You will not be my people are now getting mercy and are now called my people. Now, a couple more verses in chapter three, verse one, the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Listen to me. You married a wife of whoredom by the word of God, and she has left you and gone as your wife to continue her prostitution. What should you do? God says, I want you to enact a parable of what I do for my faithless people. So what does God do when his people run to other gods and prostitute themselves? In verse two, Hosea says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you for.'" The children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince or sacrifice or pillar without effort or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord, their God and David, their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. God sends Hosea and he says, I want you to marry a wife of prostitution. And I want you to have children with her. And they're going to be a metaphor of how faithful I'm going to be to my faithless people. So I believe Matthew wants us to understand the key sin that Jesus will save his people from is the sin of whoredom, of covenant faithlessness to God. And you might be tempted to say, "Man, I don't know how you're tying Matthew to Hosea. You might be tempted to say that I'm stretching the meaning of the text by the breaking point to the breaking point, by tying the name Jesus to the adulterous prophetic metaphor of Hosea and Gomer. But listen to me, there's a context that Matthew has given us so that these things will become obvious to us. And the context is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. In that genealogy, Matthew has just done for us what no other genealogy ever did, unless there were really important reasons to do so, namely to include a handful of mothers. Every genealogy in the Old Testament is all men. Men, begot men, begot men. And the only time a woman is introduced is when there's something really, really important about her. And Matthew does that for for us. He gives us a, a handful of mothers, about five, all of which, listen to me, were godly women in the extreme that had a history which included whorish behavior. Every single one in her day Everybody thought she was a whore. Everybody thought she was a prostitute. Tamar is the first lady mother mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, and her story is a doozy. We're going to look at it in detail when we uh, get further in our study of the Book of Genesis, but I'm, I'm going to give you the cliff notes. She had been given in marriage to Judah's oldest son, Judah is the messianic line, the line of, of Jewish kings. And so the entire story of, of Tamar takes place in the context of the covenant line of the coming Christ. And the story goes that Judah married a Canaanite woman and had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Tamar was given to Ur as a wife, but Ur was a wicked scumball in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. The only thing I added there was that he was a scumball. The text says he was wicked and God put him to death. The Lord, Yahweh, put him to death. Then as was the custom of the day, Judah told Onan, brother number two, to go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up children for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. Now, this all sounds super weird to us moderns who, quite frankly, have no authority to call any sexual practice or custom weird, right? I mean, we got some problems, brothers and sisters. If we look at anybody and say, oh, that seems weird. You should just hush and look at our culture. In the ancient times, this was a matter, listen to me, of Tamar's basic human rights and the provision of a woman's deepest longings. Tamar does not merely want to have children because she was lonely and unfulfilled, brothers and sisters. That's not what she's after. I just have always wanted to rock a baby in the nursery. That is not Tamar. Tamar is desperate to be a part of the covenant line of redemption. She knows what all feminists have forgotten, no, what all feminists have known but never loved, that a woman's unique and mysterious glory is her ability to womb the world, to take seed and to fashion it into glory and the image of God of almighty God. And by this very process to fill the earth with glory and the image of God so that his image would cover the earth like water covers the sea. This is woman's God-given purpose and glory. And this is Tamar's deepest longing. And this was what Onan and Judah conspired individually, not, not together, But in their own individual way, this desire to be a part of filling the world with the the glory and image of God and being a part of Messiah's redeeming line, she wanted to be a part of it. They conspired individually to rob that from her, to make sure that she could not participate in it. She has rights. They both use her in a way that gave them orgasmic pleasure while denying her those rights. But That's not the end of the story. So Onan, instead of having a cowardly decency that the closer uh, kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth had. You guys remember in the book of Ruth, Boaz is going to marry Ruth. And there's one guy closer who's supposed to do this for her. And he had the, I call it cowardly, but decency. He said, look, I don't want to impair my name and my inheritance. So I'm out. He has the, he has the decency to say, I don't want any part of it. And then Boaz takes over. Onan does something much worse. He decides that he will use Tamar sexually but deny her the fruit of the action. And so he repeatedly slept with her and repeatedly spilled his seed onto the ground, inflicting childness, childlessness on Tamar. And just as a comic aside, brothers, you need to know that this sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. They're always embarrassing Onan was alone with Tamar in a tent in an unknown corner of the world with no internet, no news agency, no browsing history, nothing else. If ever there was a place to sin privately while no one knew it, it was right here. Who could possibly find out what Onan is about to do? And the answer is everybody. You know it and so do I. It's in Scripture. Everybody found out. Gentlemen, be assured, and ladies, be assured, our sins will find us out. So Onan thought to rob Tamar of her desire to be a part of the line of Christ, but God saw what he did. He recorded his shame in Holy Scripture, and then he put him to death, just like he had put his older brother to death. Now Judah realizes that doing what is right will potentially cost him a third wicked son, and so he keeps his third son, Shelah, from Tamar. Okay, so he just says, let's just wait. You go to your house, your father's house and, and uh, I'll give him to you eventually, but he ends up not doing that. Fast forward a few years. Tamar sees that Sheila is being withheld from her, uh, from her even though she has a lawful claim to children. So she devises a plan that most Sunday school teachers would say meant that she was a, not a believer. But that is because they don't understand the grace of God nor the God-honoring desires of truly godly women. Tamar dresses... And then here's our theme for the name of Christ. Tamar dresses like a prostitute and she puts herself in Judah's way and he goes into her and conceives twins. And Judah gives her as pledge of payment, his signet ring. So uh, she says, what will you give me? He says, I'll give you a kid. I'll give you a young goat. And, and I don't have it with me. So I'll send it later. And she says, okay, as pledge, give me your signet ring, which is the ring that Judah, the kingly tribe wore to sign deals. So this is the kingly signet. She, he gives it to her. He gives it the cord that that hung from and his staff. And Tamar goes back home, takes off her prostitute's gown, redons her widow's garb, and waits in her father's house. Judah then sends payment to what he thought was a cult prostitute, but he can't find her and decides to leave it alone lest he be laughed at. So he sends a buddy. And he says, go find that cult prostitute. I want you to pay her off for me. And so they go around to the middle of the land. And they say, hey, where's, where's the, imagine somebody came and knocked on the door at our church. And they were like, hey, where was that prostitute that was around? Because I need to pay her, her debt. And he said, there's no, there's no prostitute here, right? So he's like, I don't want to be laughed at. So I'm going to bail. Again, the irony is we're all should be still laughing at Judah to this day. So a few months later, Tamar is found to be with child from whoredom. unlike What Joseph did with Mary and what Jesus did with the woman caught in adultery, both of whom were Judah's grandchildren, they gave mercy. Judah pronounces a priestly punishment on her. She will not be stoned to death with stones. She is to be burned to death with fire. It's amazing. He's not playing around and you can smell his unrighteous indignation from here. So as they bring Tamar out to be burned, she sends word to her father-in-law, And she says, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify the signet, the cord, the staff of this man. Game, set, match, checkmate, and shame, shame, I know your name. Judah looks down at his very own stuff, and he realizes that Tamar has been a kingdom player the whole time, while he has been an arrogant and greedy and lustful worldling. She is a princess of Almighty God, and he is a worm. His words were, quote, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. This is the theme of all of the women in the, in the genealogy of Christ. And this is why I say the chief sin that Jesus came to forgive his people from is the sin of whoredom. Unless we read over one of the most damning sins of Judah without seeing it, Let us remember that his decree of punishment against Tamar would have put Perez and Zerah, his own sons, through the fire. Burn her to death with fire. Along with her, burn the twins that belong to me. He was that close to aborting the line of the Messiah, who was born of the line of Perez. Judah is like Herod, killing the boys of Bethlehem. And yet, listen to me, listen to me, that was his intention, and yet there was grace. We'll we'll see this man in in glory, brothers and sisters. And we can laugh at him there, but we'll see him there. There was grace, even so. The world thought Tamar was a whore. God saw that she was the most righteous person on the earth. And therefore, it would be from Tamar's womb that light himself would enter the world. And that light was named Jesus. Now, time would fail if I told you in great detail of the Jericho prostitute Rahab, who saved the Jewish spies and enjoyed the judgment-trumping grace of God which spared her whole family that had been sentenced to death. She then left her harlotry. She married into the tribe of Judah. She married a guy named Salmon. She gave birth to a guy. See if you recognize this name. uh, Rahab, the prostitute, rescued from Jericho, marries Salmon and gives birth to a guy named Boaz. Anybody? She married Boaz, or she gave birth to Boaz, who married Ruth, the godly Moabite, who slipped under Boaz's blankets in the middle of the night in a very sexually suggestive text. Boaz and Ruth got married. They had a boy named Obed who had a son named Jesse who had a son named David, the king. This is all part of the redemption story and the line of Christ. So Tamar's great, great grandson becomes king of Israel and then he steals Bathsheba from a Gentile named Uriah. And yet from that womb, from the womb of Bathsheba, came Solomon, who ultimately had a son named Joseph, who married a young girl who was pregnant before marriage, named Mary. And the whole world said, Ah, she's a whore, just like all the ones that we've known in the past. And yet it was from her womb that would come redemption himself. All of this darkness, brothers and sisters, is meant to show us how hopeful is the name of Jesus, the Messiah. They call his name Jesus because he saved his people from this kind of yakitah and we all have been unfaithful to Christ we have all like israel played the whore with other gods and delighted ourselves in lovers that are not our true husband and yet christ comes into the world to save his people from their sins of harlotry he loves his unfaithful bride the church and he gave himself up for her when she was at her very worst so that in a marvelous redeeming grace he could make the whore his bride and as his bride purify her from every Stain, Augustine's great quote, he says, the church is a prostitute, but she is my mother. And we could add, she is also the bride of Christ. Jesus is the greater Joshua. He is the greater Hosea. For he brings his people a greater victory and he loves his bride through greater sin. This is the Christmas story, brothers and sisters. Jesus took on a body of flesh so that just like Adam, His broken body could be used to fashion a bride that corresponded to him. And when he rose from the dead, he was presented a bride as his victory gift. And that bride is not only called his very own body. She is also called by the name Jesus, the Christ. So what do you think, Christian? You who bear your lover's good name, his good name is pronounced over you. That's what you're known as in eternity. You bear your lover's good name. Can you think of a better name than Jesus? Can your tongue form a sweeter word? Can your mind conceive of greater news than this? That he knows us in all of our guilt and shame. And he loves us even still. You are his body. And this bread is his body broken for you. This cup we drink is a cup of remembrance and reunification. And taking it. We all partake of the one body, one Lord, one faith. At this table, the Lord Jesus, who came to save his people from their sins, is offered to you. And it's, he's offered to you so that he may save you from your sins. So you come and welcome to King Jesus. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, we ask now that, um, that you would come that you would take this good news of great joy that's for all people and especially for those who are broken. It's only for those who are broken. His name is Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. This assumes so much negatively about us and it assumes so much hopefulness about you because you're willing to save the broken And so we are glad despite our sin to run to the table and to receive the mercy that he came to give us. We were those who had no mercy. We were those who are not your people. And yet today you give us mercy through your son, Jesus. You call us your people through your son, Jesus. You make us the bride of Christ. We who have been unfaithful. And so Lord, grant that no unfaithfulness, past, present, future. No unfaithfulness should keep us from this table, for you came to save us from our unfaithfulness. Would you give us the joy and the gladness of knowing that you intend for us to come and you intend for us to be rescued. Yahweh is indeed our salvation. We trust you, Lord Jesus, and we remember you. Amen.